Friends, I invite you to be seated. One way to sum up our Lenten worship series and the book, Good Enough, might be to say that life is more than the endless pursuit of perfection. But that draw toward perfection is hard to escape. There's something in us all, I think, that wants to have it all together, or at least to look like we do. And so I'm looking forward to spending the next few weeks throughout the season of Lent carving out our comfort with imperfection together. As I think we'll discover, the answer to the relentless run towards perfection is not to give up altogether. Good enough is not just saying, ah, whatever. It is, in fact, to recognize who we are and where we are, recognize that God is with us and doing something with us. And even if it's not amazing or spectacular or grandiose, that might be good enough for faith. Each week in worship, we're going to hear a different story of Jesus from the gospel as our entryway into a good enough reflection that won't necessarily exactly correspond with the devotional for the week. I just need to tell you now, but it will certainly connect with the same themes that run throughout the book. And I do encourage you to go deeper with us by reading this book. It's by Kate Bowler and Jessica Ritchie. Good enough. We'll pull it out again for demonstration. And we'll have two different discussion groups that are going to begin meeting this week. One on Tuesdays at 7.15 p.m. over Zoom, and one on Wednesday in person here at the church at 1 p.m. And in those groups, we're going to be exploring what we're learning as we go. So I hope you'll consider joining us, reading along with us. We are out of the physical copies of this book at the moment, but if you'd like one and don't have one yet, just say so either in the live chat or write it maybe on the back of a prayer card and put that in with the offering, and we will get one for you this week. And now, just as a reminder, we are not holding ourselves to impossible standards this Lent, so it is okay if while reading along, you don't get to every devotional. If you get behind, skip a few, read them out of order or anything else, still come to worship, still come to the discussion groups, still join us on this journey. Do what you can, and we'll see what God might do with that. Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Friends, I knew it. I knew it. Some people are cheating at Wordle. I don't know if you have caught, uh, been caught by the Wordle trend over the last month or two. You may have at least heard of this online word puzzle phenomenon that has caught so many. It's a fun little game that gives players six chances to guess a randomly selected five-letter word. After each guess, you get some uh, clues about what that word, that word might be based on the individual letters used in your guess. And so when you make a guess, each individual letter is color-coded. Green to say that it's the letter in the right spot for the word you're trying to guess. Yellow to say that it is a, word, a letter used in that final word, but not in the right spot or gray if that letter is simply not part of the final word. And so over the course of six guesses or fewer, you should be able to get to that final word. It's a pretty quick game to pick up and surprisingly compelling, sometimes offering a bit of a challenge. And so for the fun of it, I thought we might do a practice wordle together this morning. 
Now, it is not the official Wordle. I need to be clear, because part of the appeal is that every day there is only one puzzle, and the hidden word everyone is trying to guess is the same for absolutely everyone. And so, because we wouldn't want to spoil the fun for anyone who hasn't played yet today, we're using a different word. I'm going to have us go ahead and put that Wordle on the screen. You can see, and it's a little bit hard in this lighting, but there's a whole keyboard full of, uh, of letters there, places for our guesses. And what I'm going to do is take suggestions for our guesses as we go, both in person and uh, on the live chat. I have my phone here to try to pay attention to the live chat. Um, and we're going to see where it takes us. Um, so we will pause for a moment with each guest to make sure that those who are on our uh, live chat have a chance um, to offer some guesses. Um, what might we start with? We need a five-letter word that would be a good starting place. Yes, let's hear one. Ah, we all, Sue always starts with alien, and so I think we may as well start with alien as well. We're going to have our tech crew in the back type in the word alien. We'll see what it gives us. I believe, is it I-E-N? I'm so glad I'm not the only one that gets the I's and the E's all, all schmutzed around in there. Um, I like the strategy, hitting the vowels hard at first. I should tell you all, my first starting word is always adieu, the French word, A-D-I-E-U, because I like to get as many vowels out of the way as possible. I didn't check to see whether you could use the keyboard or not to type into the Wordle. That may be, may be helpful as we go. Uh, you have A-L-U-E-B, I'm afraid. Uh, we can only do this once, so I didn't give, the, give them any chance to practice in the back. Uh, because once it's guessed, it's guessed. I, there we go. E. Goody, have you tried the keyboard by chance? Oh, Good. I want you to know, Jody was looking all the way up here at the front and moving the cursor and trying to figure out where it was. So, bless you. Um, and then enter. You can try enter on the keyboard. See if that gets us there. And it should pop up in colors if this is all working okay. Yes. There we are. We have an L, an I, and an E, but none of them are in the correct spot. So we're now open for invitations for that second guest to help us narrow in on what it could be. I haven't seen any on the live chat, but I am watching. This is where your strategy comes into play. We'll see how we're feeling this morning. Some folks like to reuse the, word, the letters they know are in there. Others like to go and eliminate other ones on the way. Any thoughts? You didn't know this was what you're coming to church to do. You're going to have to really work your mind and the spirit this morning. I'm afraid I can't offer any suggestions of my own because I know the word we're working towards. I know some of you are wordlers in here. Uh, any thoughts? Ooh, thank you. I see it now. Let's try alive. L-I-V-A-L-I-V-E. I I shouldn't try to spell out loud in front of all of you. It's going to be embarrassing for me. Um. Oh, 
we've made a step further. No A still, we would have known that. The LIV are still there, not in the right place, but we know now there is also an E. Uh, one of the Somervilles suggests likes. I think that may be interesting. Shall we go with likes? Ah. Okay, so we are slowly narrowing down where some of these letters can be. The L doesn't start it. It's not the second letter. The I is not the second or the third. The V is not the fourth. And the E is not the fourth or the fifth. What was it? Elvis? I am tickled by that suggestion. Let's try Elvis. E-L-V-I-S. Ah, it won't allow it because that one is a... A proper noun. I am sorry. Elves, E-L-V-E-S. We can try elves. We also have lives on the, the live chat, I see. We'll try elves to start. We can backspace two, put an E where the I is. E-L-V-E-S. We've got the V in the right spot, folks. The V comes in the middle of the word, does not begin with an E. Um, I want you to know that I have no idea how long this is going to take us. So if my sermon runs over, I am blaming this part of the sermon. Uh, what, was the, what was from the... Josh, Josh suggests lives, and I heard another one from up here. Did I? Perhaps not. Shall we try lives? L-I-V-E-S. One, two, three, four, five. So that's five of our six guesses. We are circling this, this word, folks. Let me give you just a tiniest clue that I can come up with, which is that I picked the word, and it's related at least in some form to the gospel story this morning. Let's go ahead and try devil. That has a V in the middle. We don't know about the D yet. The E could work there. The I could work there. There we are. Good work. The word was devil. I want you to know I wanted it to be Jesus because that should always be the right answer, but like Elvis, that was a proper noun and so seemed incorrect. So instead, we went the opposite direction with devil, and we did it without cheating. Good work, everyone. And it was straightforward enough. We found our way there eventually. And, you know, we might wonder why some have to resort to cheating, although perhaps our demonstration gives a bit of an example. Some words are harder to guess than others. And it is perhaps not unimportant to notice at the end of each game, a player's stats, their statistics are presented, including how many days in a row they have successfully guessed the wordle in six or fewer guesses. Now, there was a study published recently by a Word website, one that could be used to cheat on games like Wordle, that has shown that the uh, searches for the Wordle of the day have increased steadily since the start of this year, potentially because there are more people playing it each passing day, but it could also be because more people have been playing it longer. And once a win streak starts lengthening, It's hard to even entertain the idea of breaking that streak. Hard to drop the facade, even to ourselves, that we might not be perfect 
at Wordle, and we may not get the Wordle right. I know because I have a confession to make. I have cheated at Wordle. I believe the correct liturgical response is, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven, but I will accept the sharp intake of breath just the same. When I get down to that single guess remaining, and after I've fretted over it for a while without seeing an obvious solution and wondering how much of my day I'm going to let this take up, I may very well open another tab in my browser to search for a five-letter word that ends with A-P-H. I'm not proud of it, but you might understand the inclination when confronted with the possibility that I may not be able to keep up with perfection, it seems I may take the somewhat shady shortcut to keep up appearances. This is both the challenge and the solution of Lent. It's the challenge because Lent is sometimes presented to us as this season for complete transformation when everything will come together and we will become perfect and holy. We'll grow into somebody fundamentally different than the person we started as and somebody fundamentally better than the person we start as. And so Lent can become this somewhat shady spiritual shortcut, the quick fix solution when we're falling behind. And sure, 40 days isn't exactly a short fix, as least not as short as some of the ones the world might try to sell us, but it's still just a few weeks, and that's appealing. Stick it out for 40 days, give up something dramatic, take up something weighty, apply ourselves to the task with a dramatic and complete focus, and it seems like it might fix everything, and we keep up with it for as long as we can, whether that's a few days or a few weeks or more because we discover that we just can't keep up. For what it's worth, there's some comfort in the Christian tradition, as was referenced in the Good Enough devotional, when in the 6th century, St. Benedict founded a spiritual community that seemed great until just a few years in when his followers tried to poison him three times over because his rules for the community were just too difficult to maintain. And so Benedict reworked his rules to offer more balance and learned that spiritual solutions require balance and not an all-or-nothing, quick-fix solution. The solution to the challenge comes in better understanding this time of Lent. It's a 40-day fast, not a 40-day fix. And the word for Lent comes from the word for spring, playing off both the season it falls in, but also the springtime new life that bursts forth in green buds, blooming and growing where it's planted. But as any farmer or gardener who has practiced even for a short while might be able to tell us, there is no formula and certainly no quick solution for making a seed come to life. And so Lent is about wandering in the desert until new life just bursts forth somehow. When we meet Jesus in this morning's gospel passage, he has just been baptized by his cousin John in the Jordan River. This incredible moment when the skies open and the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove and God's voice speaks from heaven and says to Jesus, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. And still filled with the Holy Spirit from this divine encounter, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, maybe even the desert. There must be something for him there. There may be something for all of us there in the desert. And after 40 days of fasting, the devil shows up. Now, the devil is not the most important element of this story, but it is worth pausing just the same to recognize that we might have very different perceptions of the devil here, mental images as we imagine this story. And it is hard to discern what Luke's concept of the devil was when he wrote this gospel. 
the devil is an emerging character throughout Scripture. He begins with a few cameo appearances where he acts as an agent of God tasked with testing humanity before coming into his own and becoming increasingly hostile and harmful as the tempter of God's people. A shift from divine employee to God's chief competitor may well have been due to the influence of a Persian worldview on Judaism, considering the Persians saw the world as locked in this cosmic struggle between good and evil, both sides having their own cosmic representation. And from this point, when the devil takes on this larger role, all sorts of existing legends and images began to be attributed to the character, such as the account of the serpent in the creation story, who is presented there as a clearly deceptive force, but never described as being the tempter himself. And so today there is a wide spectrum of Christian positions on the devil. And however it is that we decide to interpret the devil character here in this story, on a scale from metaphoric all the way to literal, may not be the most important thing for us because the temptation itself is undoubtedly real for every one of us. There is a story captured in a compilation of Jewish folklore that goes like this. The evil spirit, the devil, once came dejected before God and wailed to the Almighty, I am bored, bored to tears. I go around all day long with nothing to do. There's not a stitch of work for me to do anywhere in the world. And God says to the evil spirit, well, I don't understand. There's plenty of work to be done. If only you had more initiative. Why don't you try leading people into sin? That's your job. And the evil spirit muttered, lead people into sin. Why, Lord, before I even get the chance to say a blessed word to anyone, they have already gone and sinned. Because whatever the source, the temptation is real. Since you are the Son of God, the devil said to Jesus in the desert. Since you are the Son of God. He and Jesus knew this to be true, having had it just been announced at Jesus' baptism some 40 days earlier. And from this point, the devil lays out three different temptations, turning stones into bread, ruling all the kingdoms of the world, and being caught by angels in a fall from a high place. It's twistedly clever logic, taking what Jesus knows to be true, has been told to be true, and now asking him to live up to it, encouraging him to make it happen for himself. And it's crafty, because none of the things being offered him are inherently bad in and of themselves. And isn't this always the case? Since you're a Christian, the temptation might go, you should have the benefits of faith, satisfaction, and control and safety. Since you're a Christian, you should claim what's yours, the benefits of faith waiting for you. You should make it happen for yourself. But hidden in Jesus's responses, the logic here is unraveled. He quotes in response the devil each time from the book of Deuteronomy, from much earlier in the Old Testament, referencing times when the Israelite people were wandering through the desert themselves. And so to the first, when the devil invites him, to make bread, or make stones into bread, Jesus responds with a scripture that says that we do not need bread to eat because God provides manna. This is what happens if you continue the passage of Deuteronomy. It talks about how God provides manna in the desert. And so the people in the desert do not need to make food for themselves. And the second temptation, when the devil offers him all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus responds with a scripture that references how God provides the kingdoms 
of the world. Jesus says he doesn't need to find someone to barter for the kingdoms because God will provide it as God provided the promised land to the Israelites as they were wandering through the desert. They did not need to capture or create kingdoms for themselves. It would be given to them. And then in the third temptation, the devil gets a little bit sneakier. He begins to hear Jesus' logic, perhaps, saying, well, God will give it to me. And so he says, well, what if you just force God's hand a little bit? But is that so much different than doing it on his own? Well, that's not trusting God, that's using God. For the devil tempts Jesus with casting himself off of a tall building, the temple, and being caught by angels. And Jesus responds with a scripture that says, do not test the Lord your God. Interestingly, it's very clear that Jesus has no desire to play the same game as the devil. When the devil tempts him in the first two instances, Jesus says, it is written. And then when the devil comes back and says, well, it is written that God will do this, just force God's hand a little bit, Jesus says, well, it is said. He's not willing to take on the same rules of engagement because they're playing different games. And that scripture where it says, do not tempt the Lord your God, references a story from the Israelites' time in the desert. It says, do not tempt the Lord your God, do not test the Lord your God as the Israelites did at Massa, the place where they insisted that Moses strike a rock to make water pour from the earth just to prove that God was with them. And so Jesus responds by saying to the devil, he does not need to prove that God is there and that God is faithful, for God is, and he knows and trusts it. Jesus knows and trusts that God will provide even in the desert. And so Jesus does not need to make his transformation happen in a moment. He does not need to claim for himself to be the Son of God. He does not need to create that image because God, whom he trusts and whom is with him, is at work in the desert place there as God is always at work in the desert places of Scripture as God was once with the Israelites wandering through the desert. And so rather than doing anything for himself, Jesus simply offers up the never-progressing circles of the ordinary wilderness days. And so we might also, in the desert, offer up the ordinary things rather than trying to create the extraordinary. We might admit to being hungry, powerless, and teetering on the edge, and rather try, than trying to fix any of those problems for ourselves, we trust that God receives it, and God is with us, and transformation will come eventually. The sense you are logic that the devil offers shouldn't push Jesus or any of us into quick fixes, but instead give us the grounding to exist in the desert. For as Jesus heard, he was the Son of God, so we all hear in our baptism that we are God's beloved children. It is true from the very beginning. And so we do not need to make it happen for ourselves, but trust that it is true as God works around us, even when it comes in meandering moments, even when there is just dry and empty land in front of us. God is at work. We can trust that. Transformation will come eventually. <laughs> eventually. Jesus does get all of what the devil offers him and more, eventually. 
He has bread in abundance, enough to share with multitudes. He gains the whole kingdom. And when it comes down to it, he will hurl himself from a high place on a cross. And while everyone watching was sure that it was the end and he would fall to his death, he was caught by angels and something downright miraculous took place. But there are differences. Differences that come when Jesus waits for God to provide rather than taking it for himself. Jesus does not get just bread for himself, but becomes the bread of life and the bread of the world. And so it's not just his own hunger that's satisfied. He creates an open table where anyone is welcome and all are fed. Jesus becomes a ruler, but not in a political coup or some sort of unholy union. His reign embraces service and puts the last first. And Jesus goes to the cross, but not in some daredevil defiant stunt forcing God to save him. He embraces the humiliation of humanity to conquer death and save not just himself, but us all. And that's far better than anything the devil had to offer. And it came from just wandering in the desert, trusting that God would take those ordinary desert wandering days and make something extraordinary from them eventually. As the good enough devotional says once, yes, our stupid, imperfect, ordinary lives can be holy. We don't need to make them into something more or greater. We can welcome the ordinary and the imperfect and see what God does with it now or eventually. That's what happens when we come together in worship and we celebrate at the table of communion. We take bread, we take grape juice, ordinary things, and discover that sometimes they become extraordinary. And so we offer up these ordinary things. We acknowledge who we are and all of our ordinariness. We acknowledge our failings and our foibles, recognizing the difference between the two. We know that sometimes we are the sorts of folks that will break our streak of wordle guesses or Lenten practices or anything that makes us look all too perfect. And we can accept that we are humans, that we are hungry, powerless, and teetering on the edge. And God can take and embrace that ordinariness of life and work transformation. Somehow, bit by bit, moment by moment, here or maybe later, eventually at least. And so the Lenten invitation is not to fix ourselves, not to see it as something that will transform us surely in 40 days from now, but to simply accept and acknowledge who we are, take our ordinary and lift it up, because it could be extraordinary. And whatever happens with what we have to offer, well, it won't be our doing. It will be God's. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, let us continue.